Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I will be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Today, the podcast is very happy to welcome back Stacy Peebles. Stacy Peebles is chair of the English program, director of film studies, and the Marlene and David Grissom professor of humanities at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She is the author of Welcome to the Suck, narrating the American soldier's experience in Iraq, published 2011, and Cormac McCarthy in performance, page, stage, and screen, 2017. She is the editor of the collection Violence and Literature, and with Ben West is co-editor of an upcoming volume, Approaches to a Teaching the Works of Cormac McCarthy, forthcoming later this year. She has published widely on the representation of contemporary war on McCarthy, has been editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal since 2010. Stacy, welcome back. Yeah, thanks, Scott. So last time we discussed somewhat how you discovered McCarthy. As I recall, your dad talked you into reading All the Pretty Horses. You liked it. You came back to it later as an English major at uh, Texas in Austin. And uh, maybe this time we'll go a little bit different route because I think all of this dovetails into some of our discussion today, which is your other research interests, primarily war literature and also film studies. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into those and what you've been doing with them? Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, I wrote uh, I wrote a senior undergraduate thesis on McCarthy, uh, and then I also wrote my my master's thesis on McCarthy. Uh, and then, you know, you're shopping for a dissertation topic. I knew I was in it for the long haul <laughs> at that point. And I had people tell me, look, you, you shouldn't write your dissertation just on one author, um, which at that time. You could maybe do it with Faulkner. You could maybe do it with, you know, some of the some of the big boys, but uh, but not necessarily with McCarthy. He now you can, and it wasn't too long after that 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 was you know that became legit. But it was also the case that you know my mentors were rightly advising me, look, you got to show, you got to do some different stuff, you know. Right. Uh, and so I was kind of thinking about, well, you know, what is it in McCarthy that I'm most interested in? And I was certainly interested in region, uh, particularly the southwestern stuff. But I was really drawn to the representation of violence. Uh, that was kind of what had struck me most of all, certainly was what I was most interested in in Blood Meridian. Um, at the very beginning, you know, those long passages and how they related to the landscape description stylistically, things like that. So I thought, well, you know, I also like Tim O'Brien. You know, I'm interested in James Jones and Norman Mailer. Maybe I can do something on uh on literature of violence, you know, particularly war literature. And, you know, thinking of Blood Meridian as a kind of war novel, even though it's not traditionally thought of that way. So I started writing the dissertation in the, in the early 2000s, and I had defended my prospectus of it when 9-11 happened, actually. Um, so I had set up this dissertation where I was going to talk about Blood Meridian, I was going to talk about O'Brien, uh, you know, I was going to do some James Jones, this other stuff. And then all of a sudden, national event happens. And, yeah, you know, everything's, every, different. Everything's, everything's turned upside down. But it actually was about two weeks after 9-11 when I woke up and realized one morning, oh, this field's going to change. Yeah. Like all of this is going to change, but it's not going to happen immediately. You know, it's going to be a few years before we even have a sense of what we're dealing with, even historically. And then, of course, artistically. Right. As people respond to sure. it. Sure. So. That was that was interesting. So I, I ended up writing the dissertation, but it was an exercise. I mean, I even kind of knew it as I was writing it. Like this is not going to see the light of day. Huh. It was you know it was a great exercise. Like you know, I, 
in some ways, I think that was kind of helpful because I went through it so fast. <laughs> and by the time I graduated in uh, 2004 with my doctorate, you know, the, the first stuff was starting to come out. You know, Anthony Swafford's Jarhead was getting a lot of play, even though that was about the Gulf War. You know, people were reading it in the context of the Iraq War. And so then all of a sudden I was positioned in this really nice way to start writing pretty seriously about the, the new wave, you know, the new context. of sure. Yeah. So it was kind of, I wouldn't call it fortuitous, right. But, but it was, it was not deliberate, but it ended up being really interesting in a way that, you know, continuing to write yet more stuff about Vietnam would not have been. Right. And so also film studies you've been into for a long time and that's one of your jobs at center is is teaching film right right so uh i have very little graduate training in film uh i was you know a lit person although i was at texas which is a really strong place uh, for studying film so you know i took a couple classes that were really interesting and then you know i went on to my first job which was a, a postdoc um and, you know working in contemporary literature you sort of naturally start getting interested i think in adaptation because sure. there's so much crossover. Um, There's so many authors, you know, who, who uh, choose to go that route, or at least consider it, you know, as and McCarthy did pretty robustly, as we'll talk about. And, you know, I would, I would add films to classes. And then one semester when I was teaching at the University of Houston, a friend of mine had to suddenly take a leave and I took over her film class. And I didn't know it at the time, but that would essentially uh, set me up to mm. apply, you know, apply for jobs like this one, where I'm in the English program, but I also do, do do film studies. I probably wouldn't be director of film studies if I was at an R1, right? I'm at a small liberal arts college where the, you know, people teach in all kinds of different areas, you know, as you like. But that's, I mean, I really like that. I like, I like approaching film through the lens of storytelling, you know, with a real interest in interest, not only, you know, in visual design and sound design and all that, but also narrative and how all those things. Narrative, symbolism, things like that. Right, right. I think it's, uh, I, I definitely don't believe that literature is always superior to film as that, you know, longstanding prejudice <laughs> has it. But, uh, but I think studying them together gives you a lot of resonance, right? Intellectual resonance, which I like. Absolutely. Now, so we today are talking about Corbin McCarthy's screenplay and the film which came from the screenplay, The Gardener's Son. As what as we get into it, what was going on with McCarthy at this time? Where was he uh, living? Uh, how did he get involved in this project? Where are we at with McCarthy when the Gardner's son is being developed? And I want to say, is it uh, he starts working on it in seventy three, and the film comes out in early seventy seven? Am I right? Uh, there? The film comes out in January of seventy seven. Uh, it was actually seventy five when the director Richard Pierce approaches McCarthy and says, "Okay." you know, I've got this idea for a project uh, and he already had, you know, this historical event that he wanted to do a movie about. Um, and this would eventually become this film that is played on PBS on their, what, what was called their visions series. Um, so, you know, made for TV movies, right. Uh, that were made around this time. And McCarthy had never, he, he, Pierce says in the introduction to the printed version of the screenplay that McCarthy told him at the time, I've never even seen a screenplay, you know, much less like written one. Um, but he was interested in movies. This is something I talk a little bit about in my book. You know, from the very beginning, there were film companies who were possibly interested in optioning 
his early novels, The Orchard Keeper, Out of Outer Dark, and they would you know approach um, approach his editor with these ideas and. If a film, if a film option gets exercised, right? I mean, you, you pay some money. You know, a, you know, a company can pay some money to sort of get dibs, and then they can decide right. after a period of time they have to decide whether or not they're going to pursue the pursue that right. And if they pursue it, that's a lot of money. Uh, and we know at this right. point in his career, McCarthy was not famous. He was always scrabbling for money. This was well before the major windfall of the MacArthur Fellowship in '81. Uh, and so he would write his editor, Albert Erskine, and say, well, have you heard anything from the movie people? And none yeah. of that ever went through. Uh, but he knew at the very least, like, this is a way to make money. This is something that people seem to be interested in with with my former storytelling and the kind of stuff I do, which is maybe a little surprising to us now, right? When you think about things like Outer Dark or Child of God, but... But in fact, it was Child of God that really got Richard Pierce's attention, as he says in this introduction. You know, he says, I was really hooked. You know, this was this compelling story. Huh. And he said, I found it to be negative capability of the highest order. And so there he's kind of using this Keats concept of ambiguity. Yes. Right. This, yeah. and we'll talk some about the plot in a minute, but this thing happens, this historical event. It's a violent event. It's maybe tragic, depending on how you look at it, but what happened and why, right? So that's the Gardner's son, but Pierce was reading Child of God and saying, how do you explain Lester Ballard, right? You read yeah. the book and you have all kinds of ideas about what that might be. And, you know, as scholars, we have played <laughs> with all kinds of ideas. How do you explain Lester? But there's no definitive answer, right? There's suggestions of all of these different kinds of ideas, but McCarthy does what you know great authors do right he gives you a lot of stuff to work with but he doesn't tell you the answer and pierce thought wow that would you know that's the kind of storytelling that makes for really good cinema as we just talked about like maybe the best literature and the best cinema is not didactic it's not preachy it's not heavy-handed it's interesting right it provoked conversation yes. and that's what interested pierce he and that's what made him seek out mccarthy in 75 and mccarthy was uh was down for it he had published Child of God in 73. He was at the time married to Anne Delisle um, and living in Tennessee, but from thinking about moving to El Paso, which he, he separated from Delisle and moved to El Paso in 76. So this was, you know, a time of big changes, I suppose, in his life. He was working on Sutri, but that wouldn't come out until 79. So he's changing region. You know, his domestic life is in the process of kind of turning over again. And, you know, this is also a time when he's just, he's interested in different kinds of projects. And so the idea of, oh, you know, maybe a screenplay, a different format right, is, is something I want to look into. And especially with somebody like Pierce to guide him, right? Um, and to say, well, I can show you what a screenplay <laughs> should look like. <laughs> and, you know, McCarthy did stay involved in it. He helped with casting. You know, he was fascinated apparently by the entire process. So I sort of see this as... This is a time in his life when he's had some success. You know, he's got a, he's got books out. Okay, so what's next? You know, how do you want to shake it up? And this is one of those things that starts to shake things up a bit. The screenplay is set in Graniteville, South Carolina, and dealing with what at that time was a fairly recent industrialization of the area, the big booming textile mill use working from the cotton fields in the region. And this is near 
Aiken, South Carolina. And if you're not from South Carolina, you would then go on to say, and that is in turn near Augusta, Georgia. So you cross the Savannah River near Augusta and you drive east toward Columbia, South Carolina for 15, 20, 25 miles. And that's the area where Graniteville is. He's finished child. Uh, actually, I'm surprised to learn he's already moved to Texas. I'd always assumed that was after Sutry. And I guess if I'd paid more attention to biographical timelines, I'd know this, but it's almost as if in this kind of Joycean way, he has to leave Tennessee to finish his novel about Tennessee that he's been working on for so long. Uh, but he's, he's between his projects there when he, when he commits to this. So can you tell us a little bit about the plot of, of the Gardner's son and how he's moving, what direction he's moving with that? Well, it's interesting. So um, Diane Luce has called the Gardner's son McCarthy's first fully historical narrative in the way that we usually use that term, right? So huh. Child of God, as we know, you know, has corollaries, you know, he's kind of playing with the Ed Gein story, um, the same story that results in Psycho, some other stuff. And certainly his work is always rooted in specificity of place, you know, uh, orchard keeper, outer dark. I mean, these do have, you know, historical corollaries, but the Gardner's son is based on a precise historical event. Um, all of these people, right. all of the main characters are real people. Um, now, sort of like Blood Meridian, though, I mean, this is not gone with the wind, right? This isn't um, yeah. history that a lot of people know. This is a fairly obscure event, but it does have, you know, it does have historical sources. And the event, so the event that Pierce is interested in is when um, this young man, Robert McAvoy, who is the son of Patrick McAvoy. The McAvoys are poor, you know, a poor family living in Graniteville. The father and at times, uh, some of the kids work in the textile mill. Um, the father, early on, is the gardener, so in charge of working in the greenhouse. Um, although eventually that becomes derelict, and he's you know, just another floor hand uh, working working in the factory. Right. So Robert McAvoy is his son, right? The gardener's son. Uh, and the historical event is when one day Robert McAvoy shoots and kills James Gregg. Uh, who at that time was the owner uh, and the person who ran, you know, ran the textile mill. James Gregg is the son of William Gregg, who essentially built the mill. And you see him at the very beginning of the screenplay, he dies uh, and he, you know, his funeral, you know, takes place at the beginning of the screenplay. He is lauded as this great, you know, patriarch, right? He gathers the people you know, from the region who need jobs, who need care, and builds this garden of industry, right, quote, unquote, um, you know, yeah. in this, this pastoral setting, but, oh, this is progress, right, uh, we're going to all come together, and we will build this, this new way of living, right, in our beautiful land. <laughs> uh, yeah, so by all accounts, you know, Robert McAvoy didn't really dig that. <laughs> he didn't really cotton to that <laughs> idea too much. But in, but it's about this event. It's about this murder and this conflict. Why does why does Robert McAvoy kill James Gregg? How does this happen? Uh, and then what happens? What happens to him later? So that's that's what Pierce is interested in working with. And McCarthy, given you know given his interests, um, also sort of finds this appealing. The murder happens in 1876, which was just about a hundred years beforehand. Um, so 
you know, maybe some thinking. I mean, we, there are these hundred-year periods that show up in McCarthy, right? You go from 1849 and Love Meridian to 1949 and all the pretty horses. Yes, yes, exactly. He seems interested in, yeah, what happens in a century? Uh, and so since they're working on this in 76, and it comes out like, I think it's January 6th, 77 is when it appears on television or premieres on television. Um, so it's just about 100 years later that the screenplay is, that the movie is completed and premieres. He does some interesting things, too, with development of some of the characters and some of the side plots, if you will. The screenplay is interestingly slim. Well, you know, I mean, they actually wanted to release this. There was some desire to have this released in theaters, but oh. it was shot on 16 millimeter and they would have had to convert the format. And they yes. also would have had to cut it since I think the finished runtime is a little long. It's, oh. And they were told, well, you'd have to change the format and cut it. And I think I remember that McCarthy writes to Howard Woolmer and says, yeah, these things cost money. So that would be great, but it's probably not going to happen. And indeed, you know, it never, it never did. Right. One of the things that's interesting when he sets up the film is the use of Mrs. McAvoy to kind of bookend the two. Right. Oh, you, you mean Mrs. Greg, right? So. Mrs. Greg, pardon me. Yes. So we have her acting very kindly when Bob gets injured in the first part of the movie and the doctors come to see to her ailing husband. And he says, there's nothing I can do. She goes, okay, let's get to this boy with the bad leg. Cause you can help him. Right. So she is, she's the matriarch. <laughs> and so her husband at the beginning of the screenplay is on his deathbed. The doctor's saying, there's nothing we can do. He's definitely going to die. And then she says, well, you need to go see about the boy. And she means Robert McAvoy in town. And so, and she actually accompanies the doctor to the McAvoy home. Robert McAvoy at the beginning of the screenplay has injured, his leg has been injured and is, I think in the words of the screenplay, beset with rot. So it's gangrenous apparently and, you know, woefully infected and has to be amputated. Uh, so the doctor you know, diagnoses that he says, oh, I've done a ton of these in the war. Um, so I, I'm, he's equipped to do it. Obviously that's not <laughs> at all pleasant. And McAvoy I mean, your first uh, impression of him, and this is true of both the screenplay and the film, is he's angry, he's resistant, uh, he's saying no, you know, he's screaming, um, and it's Mrs. Gregg who goes in, makes him look at his rotted leg, you should, have you looked at it? Look at it, uh, takes the blanket off, um, and says, look, you know, it has to be, you know, this is, this is just what has to be done, and so actually assists, she stays, she says, I promised the boy, so she stays, and um, in this rather, I mean, she's not exactly a kindly... No, there's no sainthood there. There's also some patrician oversight, right? right? Noblesse oblige sort of thing going on. But but she does facilitate the amputation, which, you know, presumably saves his life. Right. Even if it leaves him disabled, which is a big part of his character after that. Again, is this an explanation? Uh, I don't know. But it's it's one of these pieces, right, that he is now different. He's now marked. Um, he is less able, especially, you know, given uh, he has to make his own prosthetic, which he, you know, carves out of wood. But you, yeah, from the very beginning, these two Gre these two families, the Greggs and the McAvoys, are already together. Uh, McAvoy is seen kind of staring idly out the window as he's recovering to at the, at the funeral procession for William Gregg. And I, I remember, too, that one thing Mrs. Gregg says when she's trying to convince Robert McAvoy to, to, you know, 
to assent to this operation is, you know, I lost a son in the war. You don't want to do this mm -hmm. to your parents. And so she's facing the death of her husband. She's apparently lost a son. And so she's telling him, you know, you matter in a sense, right? So don't just give up. Um, and yes. she says this to the young man who will then kill her son later. Right. Later. Her, her remaining son. Right. Which is all very fascinating. And even I gather from the historical event, and I remember this from the chapter you wrote in your book, there seems to be a serious implication that he had been, or according to Bob McAvoy during his trial, he had been seriously uh, sexually harassing Martha, the, the young, younger McAvoy girl who's a young teenager. Yet in this telling of the story, you get the feeling that he starts to head down that road and she has such a strong reaction, nothing ever really occurs. And she says so later. And so that seems an interesting place for them to decide to deviate from a historical reason for motivation. And it's moving towards that negative capability, as you were saying. Right. Right. So Martha, at the time of the murder, is 14 and working in the factory. And James Gregg, by that time, of course, has you know, taken over his father's you know, leadership of the mill. And it becomes very clear in the screenplay that, yes, he harasses some of the, you know, impoverished, you know, female workers, the lower class female workers. He offers. Right. There's a scene where he offers Martha money and he's not he doesn't explicitly say for what, but it's very clear. And it kind of dawns on her and she flees his office. And in the historical trial, the real life trial, Robert McAvoy did say this was or apparently indicated this is my motivation. I knew right. that he had essentially threatened my sister. But in McCarthy's screenplay, he doesn't seem to know about that. She never tells him. He never gives any indication that this is a source of anger for him. Well, he's gone when it happens. McCarthy, I, uh, my sense, I, I could be wrong on this. Maybe I'm not reading as precisely as I should, but I think he also, he plays with the time of everything a little bit. Yes. So, you know, like, for instance, Robert McAvoy is in jail for a long period of time in real life before his, his execution. He's tried and then executed. But in McCarthy's screenplay, that's condensed to basically a matter of days. Um, Right. And I think, too, so the amputation and the death of William Gregg in the screenplay happen at the beginning of the screenplay. McAvoy leaves, is gone for two years, and then comes back, and that's when the murder happens. But historically, William Gregg dies in 1867, and the murder happens oh, so in 1876. And so I think, I think he's just manipulating the time a right. little bit here and there. Um, but that said, you know, in the screenplay... McAvoy says nothing for himself at the trial. He does not speak, which is also, again, really interesting. Um, his father, Patrick McAvoy, the gardener of the time, the ex-gardener, I suppose, of, of the title, wants him to, and he is kind of riven with despair over his son's circumstances. And they say, well, we don't want to let him talk because if any of any kind of reasoning that you would put forth might serve to blacken the Greg name, and that's going to put off the jury. Right. Oh, so wow. that's the excuse that's given that maybe if, you know, this James Greg's behavior was known, which it appears to have been, you know, whispered about mm -hmm. and talked about, if they're going to bring that up and 
presented as a motivation, whether or not it actually was in the screenplay, it doesn't seem to be. It's certainly not a part of the conversation that uh, Robert McAvoy and James Gregg have before the shooting happens. Right. But if that's brought up, it's just going to look bad. So uh, another thing that's interesting here is, I think, historically, a year or two before the murder, there's a some kind of strike. Right. right. That occurs. I don't know if that's a national thing or just a regional thing. I suspect regional. I don't know how national strikes were at this point in history. I mean, I'm and, not sure about, you know, certainly national coordination in like 1875 would be would be tricky. But I mean, it is the case that um, I mean, this is industrialization. Right. Uh, there's it, there's yes. going to be conflict. There's so much about class and labor and commerce that McCarthy and Pierce are interested in exploring, but again, like not just like all of these other elements we've talked about, you know, McAvoy's disability, James Gregg's um, treatment of the women, um, the young women in his, in his factory, maybe just a a natural sense of alienation or something, but Mm. you also have class conflict, labor conflict, this drastic change in lifestyle that's happened. uh, People who can no longer make a living, you know, agriculturally, and and so you know, have to come to the mill. There's a scene in the screenplay of a train full of woefully impoverished people who show up and say, yes. "Yeah, yes. we're looking for work." And Mrs. Gregg says to her son, "You know, my husband, you know, your dad would have taken these people in. He believed in the capabilities of." of the people, right? He was a populist uh, in that sense, you know, a patriarchal populist. And James Gregg is super cynical, right? Just says, oh, these people are, you know, they're inbred, their eyes are grown together, they're good for nothing. And I think eventually, you know, sends them to a church to get some food, and then is just going to pack them right back to where they came from. And they're saying, right. well, we don't, we don't have anything there. It's a, it's a little Snopesism, isn't it? You think of, for all the problems of the earlier generation with that patronage system, at least there was some occasional little glimpses of veins of morality and how they treated the people who were less fortunate. And you get the next generation coming along. And of course, the time is set off a little differently in Faulkner, Jacques, and Abtafa. But the next generation is all about the money right. and just making the profit. And they really don't care about the people at all. So whatever small veins of morality could be mined from that system are now gone altogether in a way that, you know, Jason Thompson, the second or third or whatever he is, and this latter part of Sound and the Fury is very different than, say, his father and grandfather and great-grandfather and so on. Right. It's 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 still class prejudice, right? But it is, at least in the screenplay, it is exercised in a way that's potentially more, even more damaging um, and certainly perhaps enraging. Um, so right. the moment of the murder is again, you know, relatively ambiguous when Robert McAvoy goes into James Gregg's office. And it's this kind of conversation that uh, I know Diane Luce has likened it something to something like The Stranger, where why does he shoot him? You know, it's not, you really have, you know, you don't really know. Right. But I, I felt hot and, it, and <laughs> the light was shining in my eyes, right. which is what well, Merceau case, says in The Stranger. Yeah, you know, James Gregg says something like, you're the gardener's son, aren't you? And he says, you, know, you don't know me. You know, you don't know anything about me. You don't know anything about my father, um, which is something he says periodically throughout the screenplay. Just because you know mm. my name doesn't mean you know me. Just because I'm your brother doesn't mean you know me. Um, 
we are not our labels. Uh, and, mm. but he's, he is incredibly inarticulate. Uh, he's probably one of the, one of the least articulate characters in McCarthy. And I would put him up against the kid in Blood Meridian in that respect. Just doesn't <laughs> say a lot. And so James Gregg is kind of irritated with him and just says, you know, here, why don't you leave? I'm getting, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this conversation. He puts a gold piece on the table, just like he did for Martha. Yes. And you know, that caused Martha to flee. It causes Robert McAvoy to just, the screenplay says something like James Greggs looks up at Robert McAvoy in the moments after he did this and the blood drains from his face because he realizes, Oh, that might've been a a step too far. Uh, And then he scrabbles for a gun in the desk. He doesn't quite get it in time. And Robert pulls his gun and shoots first. So again, it's not exactly cold blooded murder. James sort of instigates it and then goes for his gun first, but He's bad at it. Robert shoots him twice in the office and then goes out in the street. And I think James kind of stumbles out the doorway and Robert shoots him again uh, publicly, you know, the final shot. Um, And then that's that that is the end of James Gregg. After that, uh, all of the great machinery of the mill comes to a screeching halt. And there's this kind of deafening silence. And in fact, that's how Mrs. Gregg, you know, over at her house hears it and knows something must have just happened and goes into the factory. And we should mention, uh, well, I guess there's really two things that stand out to me. One is if you have 50 people write the screenplay based on the bare outline of the story, I think 49 of them are going to either make James Gregg very sympathetic or Bob McAvoy very sympathetic or both. Right. And here McCarthy fails to give you anyone to hang your hat on other than possibly Martha. Right. And, and to a much lesser degree, Mrs. Mrs. Greg. The other thing is we should mention that the, in the film, uh, McAvoy is played by a young, very intense Brad Dorif who becomes a very great veteran television actor who shows up in everything over and over again. I think I first really started paying attention to him when he did a run on the X-Files, but he shows up in everything. Right. for many years following and he's very very good right and he had just at this time just been in <clears throat> um one flew over the cuckoo's nest ah. playing another like inarticulate you know, in that movie you know fairly sympathetic young man you know troubled young man and so that association i think and not only the association but the acclaim associated with that movie really works really works for this and so duraf you know he's intense he's tortured but you're right. Um, you kind of, I mean, he, you would, he would be more sympathetic if you knew what he was tortured by. And yeah. there's all these possibilities, again, not least his disability, you know, his family situation, you know, the, this textile mill plopped right down <laughs> in the middle of this community and somebody likes James Gregg, but none of those, again, is a definitive answer for why, why he pulls the gun. When he returns from his travels and his departure in real life trying to get away later from the murder and 
his one time with Sam Hoppe train here are very different. Maybe we can come back to that later. But he returns, and the orchard is fallow. The greenhouse uh, panes are broken out. The plants and flowers are all dead. And it's hard not to see a little bit of overt symbolism here that maybe reminds us of the orchard keeper a bit in terms of as we let go of working the land and tilling the land and being connected to the land and become creatures of industry and of factories and machines. And we're inside, we're working based on the call of the automated alarm clock rather than when the sun rises or sets or whatever. We think that back to Thoreau talking about this in Walden. I wonder if that's part of what's going on. It's simply the the idea of the grist mill, uh, and in this case, textile mill, churning people up in a way. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think this is something that we've always talked about with McCarthy. You know, I, I came at McCarthy first through the Southwestern works, but this is all the pretty horses, you know, the Texas mm-hmm. is different. Um, it's all fenced up. <laughs> Can't do stuff here. You know, moms can sell the ranch. What the heck? I want to go somewhere where that's not the case. I want to rewind the clock. Um, it's not that easy. But, uh, but yeah, you know, <laughs> what happens when, especially in this, you know, um, late 19th century, early 20th century, what happens when things are modernizing so fast and so many communities are affected? How do individual, individuals incorporate those changes in their life or not, right? How do societies, how do communities? I, I think he maybe is most interested in these smaller communities that where the change is maybe more drastic. How do then people relate to each other? And what happens with these figures these so often isolated figures, uh, or not isolated, but uh, you know, John Grady Cole is kind of his own person. He doesn't really fit sure. in in his hometown anymore. You know, he's ready to go. You know, Robert McAvoy, certainly Lester Ballard, uh, right? Property's changing hands. You can't do things the way you used to. So now what? And you know, so often these figures are figures of some kind of resistance. Um, and I use that yeah. term not in a political sense. Because I don't, I mean, you know, McCarthy is not writing characters who are doing this as a publicly legible action, right? I mean, John Grady Cole is not making a point, Um, you know, (laughs) he doesn't want newspaper articles written about. He wants to be a cowboy. He wants to be a cowboy. Uh, He doesn't want to be profiled as a cowboy. He just wants to be a cowboy. You know, Robert McAvoy is not striking a blow for the common man. No. Well, you can read, you can certainly read it that way. And that's why, you know, historians have been interested in that murder. I mean, I say historians have been interested. Again, it's not exactly a well-known event, but what feeds that rage, right? What is he reacting against? And, you know, his in terms of historical context, I think there's two other very interesting, weird things going on here. The first is, uh, if that strike happens in 75, 76, then 50 something years later in 1934, there's a giant textile Mm -hmm. strike in the upper part of South Carolina, where much like you hear about happening in other parts of the country, guys of Winchesters Mm -hmm. are brought in to put it down. People are beaten to death. People are shot and killed to suppress the the riots and and the strike. And this is, you know, the thing that people like Dashiell Hammett are writing about at that time. Mm-hmm. He participated in some of that as a Pinkerton, and it shows up later in some of his some of his fiction. And so there's all that historical context, which makes us think this is also set there in Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways the the well-to-do classes sold the war to the poor people, who always called it 
from the South, a rich man's war, poor man's fight was they're going to come down here and take away your way of life and your livelihood. And of course they weren't saying they're going to take away slaves. That's what we're scared to death. Cause then we can't be insanely wealthy without doing any work, <laughs> which is of course what they meant. What they're saying is you guys won't have any work. You won't be able to stay on your farm. You won't be able to herd your 20 cattle and make a living at it. It's all going to change if the North comes in and makes us like them. Right. And as much as we find those people selling that tell of the cause and everything that's quote special unquote about South in that antebellum period, there does seem when you look at the history of the textile mills and the, the coal mines and, mm. and all that throughout the Southeast and Appalachians. And of course, not to mention up into Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and so on. There does seem to be some truth to what they were worried about that mm. this shift towards big factories owned by a few people is not going to be the same as small farms owned by lots of people. Now, of course, in the South, that was never the reality. Mm-hmm. It was really big farms owned by a few people and a smattering of other people had little farms all over the place, like we see in the Midwest at the time. Right, right. But- now, and McCarthy hints at that context in the play, in the screenplay too, where when Robert McAvoy is on trial, his lawyer- is Yes, that's, that's really weird. Well, six in the in the screenplay. I don't know if this is how I haven't seen the movie in years, but in screenplay, six of the nine jurors are black. Right. Uh, two attorneys for the prosecution and, and two attorneys for the defense. Right. Are, are black, and it, which is really interesting because there was this push by the Reconstruction government to appoint freed slaves into mm-hmm. all all kinds of political appointments, sheriffs or mayors or town councilmen, and also to serve on juries and things as a way of partly to get the South up to speed, partly to rub their noses in the fact that they lost. Right. What's strange to me is that nothing more is made of it. Well, there's one moment, though, I think is important because so the the attorney, uh, Robert McAvoy's attorney, his name is he's referred to as Whipper uh, in the screenplay. Right. And he I think is from the North. And they say and he says at one point uh, he's talking to Patrick McAvoy, Robert McAvoy's father, you know, as Patrick is again, kind of roiling in despair over the, you know, the circumstances of his son. And he says, well, I, I guess, you know, that I was sent here uh, to appeal to the jurors um, because you have such a high percentage of, of, of blacks, right. Living in this area. And so that's mm. why I'm the attorney. And Patrick McAvoy is not really hearing him. I mean, you know, he's, he's kind of losing it a little bit at this point, but yeah. he's kind of saying, I just can't see the justice in this. You know, I know his his execution is inevitable. They're not going to let him speak at trial. I just can't see, you know, how this is right. And Whipper kind of has a line where he says, "Well, look around. You know, talk. You want to talk about justice? <laughs> I yeah, can, yeah. Let me talk to you about how there's no justice." And Patrick McAvoy, I, I, you know, only dimly apprehends what Whipper means. Yes. But he's got this great line. What is it? Um, I think I've got it here. He says, if my boy were Greg, he'd not even be tried. Right. Whipper says, if your son were black, he'd not be tried, meaning he'd be lynched. Right. And then he says something about God, right? He says, um, oh, yeah. if man's justice were no better than God's. If men were no more just than God, there'd be no peace in this world. Everywhere I look, I see men trying to set right the inequities that God's left them with. So look, <laughs> you are so you're upset about your son, but look around. You know, right. um, <laughs> that's some finish McCarthy shining through. Isn't well, there? right. And it also um, it, 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 but it, I think it also answers that question. You know, why have this character 
And it all, it hints at his, I think, you know, his consciousness of racial inequity, you know, we, something we talk about with McCarthy, you know, what's, what is he doing with race? You know, how is he engaging with these questions? It's there, but like everything else, it's pretty subtle and you have to read between the lines. But I think, I think that is a great moment of perspective. If not for Patrick McAvoy, then certainly for the, the reader or the viewer. The audience. So speaking of McCarthy obsessions, we continue to have the ongoing fathers and sons Mm -hmm. dynamic. And in this one, unlike most of his other works, we also see a fair amount of the mothers Mm -hmm. as well. And certainly in the Greg side, Mrs. Greg is a far more present character than the the patriarch who dies at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the the screenplay. Right. And there's this great scene near the end with Mrs. Greg and Martha, where Martha is going to Mrs. Greg and is in her, again, rather inarticulate, innocent way, both trying to offer sympathy, right? Trying to express condolence, but then also to sort of ask, isn't there anything that you could do? Which, given Mrs. Greg's previous actions, is is not completely unfounded. But in fumbling through this, she's trying to say, they say these bad things about what James did, right? It, meaning his advances toward or possible, you know, sexual abuse of these young women. And she's trying to say, it wasn't all that bad. I think it, they made it sound worse than what it was. You know, she's talking about when he offers her money and she runs right. away. she's trying to minimize that. Again, he didn't chase me down and hit me over the head or anything. Right, right. Offered the money to a 14 year old. Right, which, you know, yes, you can. I mean, this is why I want to emphasize her naivete, her youth, her extreme youth, all this kind of stuff. And Mrs. Gregg reads that as manipulation. She and she says, Oh, you're you're good, (laughs) or something like that, right? Yeah. And that's not at all what Martha means. She's honestly just trying to say, I'm sorry about your son. I didn't think he was all that bad, or maybe I did. If I did, I'm not going to say it. Right? Or, or nothing happened. If you think that's part right, of it, right? Right. If you think exactly, right? If you think that's part of it, I never told my brother, and it wasn't anything anyway. But Mrs. Gregg reads this almost as a threat, yes. and so in this moment of community that's right there about to happen, where Mrs. Gregg looks at Martha before this exchange and says, "You know, I just I look at your face, and I just can't see anything of evil and death." Right? Like. Mm. I look at your innocent face and it makes me think maybe this was just a freak occur, you know, right? Like, I don't actually think your family is evil or, you know, whatever, whatever her thoughts are. But then Martha fumbles and says this, Miss Greg re- misreads it. And then the moment is over, right? Mrs. Greg says, you know, you can leave now. And thus, thus, Robert McAvoy will certainly be hanged. That's that's the inevitable outcome because yeah, that's probably true. If he had any kind of out, it would be Mrs. Gregg. She would have the power, probably, maybe yes, make that not yeah. happen. But yeah, you know, we talk so much again about like McCarthy and moments of community, and this is just such a near miss. It's you know, I've, I've yeah. talked about the story as tragedy, and that is a great tragic moment of a few words in the wrong order. <laughs> and, <laughs> 
and then, you know, somebody's going to die. But a very realistic miscommunication that happens as well. It's the kind of thing you can see really happening. Are there, are there any, to your mind, very big divergences, you know, significant ones between the published screenplay and the aired telefilm? Well, the big one, the big one has to do with Martha, right? So we talked a little bit about McCarthy manipulating time and chronology. uh, And that's one thing. I don't find that to be all that important. But if you read the screenplay, there are two bookending scenes, right? One at the beginning and one at the very end. And they both feature Martha as a very old woman. And these are cut from the finished film. Okay. So they're not included. I don't know if they were ever shot. Um, hmm. I, I, I kind of think not because I never saw a casting uh, list for, you know, for an aging, you know, aged Martha. But what happens is um, this character named Chaff, Chaffee, uh, who is James Gregg's nephew, I think, is going back to Graniteville, like looking around, kind of trying to make sense of the murder. So he's a kind of witness figure uh, that we see a lot in McCarthy. And at the beginning of the film, Actually, yeah, Martha's not in the opening, right? In the beginning of the film, he is going and trying to find the records about the event, about the murder. And he's talking to somebody who's referred to, I think it's the timekeeper. Is that right? The timekeeper. Yes. And then then later, he's also called the timekeeper, but then his name starts being used. Right. It's an abrupt shift in the the screenplay. And the timekeeper has these old boxes of records and things. Uh, and Chaffee is sort of saying, okay, well, you know, can I look at them? And the scene, the opening bookending scenes ends with the timekeeper saying, they ain't the thing, old papers, old papers or pictures. Once you copy something down, you don't have it anymore. You just have the record. Mm. Times past are fugitive. They can't be kept in no box, which is a great, you know, McCarthy (laughs) moment. For those of you who go to the archives, remember, those things are fugitive. They can't be kept <laughs> right. in that box. <laughs> exactly. But right. I mean, so this is, this is a historical story. You know, this is a historical adaptation. You know, this is interesting for those reason, re- reasons, but what are you, what are you trying to get when you're trying to tell a story to reconstruct a story? And so that kind of self-consciousness about the project, which you see, uh, you know, again and again in McCarthy, I think it's, a, it's all over the crossing with this idea of the Corrido, right. And, the story of Boyd Parham, it's in the stonemason a little bit. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, of course, all over the Border Trilogy, uh, this emphasis, this not only emphasis on storytelling, but even a philosophical engagement of what does it mean to tell a story? What does it mean to tell a history? How do you do yeah. that? And so the very end of the screenplay, and again, this is not in the finished film, Chaffee goes to Martha, uh, who's in sort of an institution, you know, she's, she's very old. She's never married. Um, never mm. had children, um, but thought a lot about what happened. Um, the last thing Robert says to her before he's executed is, you know, go find a good man to marry, um, you know, have a good life. And she, she seems like, I mean, she's not, you know, despairing, but she didn't have that life, whatever it was that he mm. was thinking about. And so, you know, she talks to Chaffee a little bit. She, and she says, you know, I have this old picture of Bobby, as she calls him. Um, and the last line of the, or the last little section of the screenplay, she says, sometimes I wish I'd not even kept it. That lawyer said that the image of God was blotted out of his face. That's what he said about Bob, Bobby. Look, look at this man, you know, he's got nothing, you know, nothing, nothing to save him, right? Nothing good about it. Mm-hmm. I, I ought not to even have kept it. I think a person's memory serves better. Sometimes I can almost talk to him, 
but I can't see him no more. In my mind, I just see this old picture. Right. So, and before that, she said this kind of profound thing of, I wonder if in heaven we still have names. Does God care? Does God even care what you did? Right. You know, I mean, she says this again in this very Martha way, um, but that's incredibly profound. If you don't have names and God doesn't care what you did, that's either the most radical understanding of mercy that I can think of yes, because it's so radical that justice is no longer viable. It doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter who you are. And so the screenplay ends with, you know, this aging Martha reflecting on all of this and not again in a historically, you know, I thought about maybe he was mad about the mill. You're not about that, not about his disability, but more who was he really? Um, I wish I, I wish I didn't have this representation because it has yeah. supplanted my own memory, which was somehow more real. But what was Bobby really? Who was he really? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't even matter to God. And that puts the whole story in a more meta light. Definitely McCarthy space. <laughs> right, right. Well, and so and- you get this kind of, I mean, so Martha is the vehicle in the written screenplay for McCarthy to introduce these ruminations on yeah. not just again, history, society, labor, class, all that stuff, but also representation, historicity, not just history, right. But the actual action of telling those stories and what they mean. Yeah. The two most McCarthy esque scenes in the whole thing, the published screenplay are when he's talking to the guard and the photographer and the photographer saying, People like to have a picture of a hung guy could sell it and get split the money with your family. And at first, Bob's kind of insulted and then he insulted, I should say. And then he turns and says, well, just don't tell them where it came from. Mm -hmm. So they won't feel bad about it. And then where the money comes from, I should say. And then that's the picture she must be talking about. And then that ties in with her at the very end. And so it really is a a nice resonance Mm -hmm. there. That's very affecting. And it's really to me, the most sympathetic moment of, of Bob, the entire book, mm. is that scene with the photographer and the guard. And the fact that he can relate and be friendly to the guard is the only guy in the book he had been that way with. Right, right. I mean, it's that, you know, he's, he's, he's kind to Martha, you know, in their last interaction. Yeah. But you know, there's been other interactions where she says, you're still my brother. Well, you know, the good book says all men are brothers, but it doesn't seem to cut no ice, does it? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But finally he kind of actually focuses on her for just a moment and says, you know, go on, have a good life. Um, But yeah, you're right. I mean, he's not, you know, one of the maybe early explanations of the murder is that, well, he was just bad. He was just a bad boy. Right. And, you know, you think about violent events or, the context of evil or, you know, however you want to engage it. Well, maybe he was just bad all the way through, right? Maybe he was bad from the beginning. And then, you know, later histories, well, maybe this happened because of the social context and because of uh, what's going on at the time, industrialization. But what was he really? Well, you know, maybe it's a combination, you know, McCarthy's sort of showing you, well, he's clearly not an evil being. I mean, this is not Holden. (laughs) Right. This is not Chigurh. This is not somebody acting with, extreme malice. I mean, if anything, he's just uh, alienated, offended, angry. Yeah. Right. So it's so similar to our conversations, I think about Lester Ballard, you know, and that. Yeah. And in fact, in fact, when uh, in the, in the historical events, when McAvoy, McAvoy fled the scene of the murder 
and then was captured on a train and he had dressed in women's clothing. Yes. Try to get away and you kind of think, oh, there's a little. And that's what I referenced earlier. (laughs) Yeah. And, And, you know, McCarthy must not have known about this obscure event when he's writing child of God, it must just be a happy coincidence. I think so because Pierce came to him in 75 and child of God was published in 73. It must just be a happy coincidence, but may, you know, it is, it, it, it does strike one. (laughs) Well, and, 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 uh, Robert Block had written about Norman Bates also based somewhat on Ed Gain, you know, dressing in his mother's clothes and all that stuff. And all that's in the background as well. So what was the reception of the film like when it was first released? How, how did it do? Well, it critics? did pretty well. Um, the reviews were good. Uh, you know, it, it was reviewed. This Vision series on PBS was you know, pretty well thought of. It was nominated for two Emmys, which is pretty interesting. Oh. Now, they're both technical technical nominations. So one is for like lighting directing, uh, what we might call lighting design now. And the other was for graphic design and titles, I guess. Uh, huh. the, t- the title sequence is pretty cool, really, like. You sort of move abruptly between these pastoral images of countryside and then close-up shots of the mill machinery clanking and whirring very, very loud. And that's your introduction to the film, which is a pretty effective, you yeah. know, tonal introduction. Um, so it's nominated for two Emmys. It doesn't win either one, but it, you know, it certainly gets press. And like I said, there was talk about, you know, releasing it theatrically, but uh, that would have taken, I don't know how much money it would take to change the format, but nobody was really interested in pursuing that, especially with the cutting. I would think McCarthy in particular would possibly <laughs> not want that. And so, you know, it became this, I mean, it's certainly not a movie that people really talked about until McCarthy became famous. And then people said, oh, well, he did do a movie, you know, when pretty, all the pretty horses, you know, when Billy Bob Thornton adapted that in 2000. People said, oh, it's, it's the first adaptation of McCarthy. It's like, no. I mean, now, technically, I guess this is not an adaptation because he wrote the screenplay. It's not an adaptation yeah. of a novel. I still use that term. I mean, anything, I, I tend to use it for anything in text that you then, you know, make into, uh, make into audiovisual, you know, material. It, make it- right, because because he works with a Pierce, uh, Pierce himself to develop a shooting screenplay right. from this original screenplay. Exactly. Just... Just for your edification audience, uh, I, I just turned to my research assistant, Mr. Google, <laughs> and the Emmys of 76, Mary Tyler Moore wins. I guess it should have been 77, but this will still work. Mm. Police Story wins <laughs> over Beretta and Colombo in the streets of San Francisco. Uh, NBC's Saturday Night wins, which must have hmm. been the big new thing yeah, at the right, time. Right. On Comedy Variety Gypsy in My Soul won over the Lily Tomlin special and Stephen Eady, Our Love is Here to Stay. <laughs> uh, and outstanding, let's look for limited series or movies. We have a miniseries called Lincoln with Hal Holbrook as Lincoln. Oh. I guess he's still on stilts huh. or something for that. And where is there a single drama? Ed Asner mm-hmm. in Rich Man, Poor Man. Catherine Walker is Abigail Adams in the Adams Chronicle, which is hmm. another PBS film. Right. And then I don't see anything. I think that the, the Vision series was also nominated for an Emmy um, as a series. But yeah, it might have been the 77 ones, and I don't think it won. But yeah, PBS was, you know, the Netflix of its day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So pretty, uh, you know, doing pretty popular material. This would have been seen as, you know, a kind of 
historical drama, you know, for the discerning viewer, right? Um, for the person, it, you know, it's not, it is not an action movie, put it that way, right? right. Uh, it yeah. moves pretty slow. But you know, it's got Ned Beatty in it. It's got Jerry Harden. You know, it's it's got a good cast. It's, it's yeah. You kind of do watch it and sort of wish, you know, the, like again, I've got. I wish they hadn't used sixteen millimeter, like a little bit more yeah. quality. And you know, this, um, you know, this is this is a good film. Uh, but again, it's mainly discussed these days uh, because of McCarthy. And I guess we we can't talk about it without talking about his cameo in the movie, right? So McCarthy. Um, very apparently delightedly appears in the movie for just for a couple seconds, but he is one of a group of uh, businessmen who are touring the factory. He's got a little top hat coat on. Um, and this is before, right before the murder happens, but you can briefly see him uh, looking around. You know, just for a few seconds. Just yeah. for a few seconds, looking pleased and interested in, in the doing. So that's kind of fun. That's always worth, worth looking out. So we've had two screenplays by McCarthy that are published and filmed. Right. And then we have the, the published and filmed play of Sunset Limited, the published and staged but not filmed play of the uh, Stonemason. And then we have unproduced screenplays of Cities of the Plain and the uh, Wells and Men. Right. right. And also El Paso Juarez, which is... Which is Cities of the Plain, right? So El Paso is right. first titled El Paso Juarez, right? And then No Country. No Country, no country for Old Men. So of the screenplays only, leaving aside the two plays, where does this fall in terms of your estimation of the screenplays? It's probably the best. Mm -hmm. You know, The Gardener's Son is a work that when I first got into McCarthy, I read it, you know, due diligence. Um, I didn't really think much about it. But you go back and you start talking about it. And man, all of this stuff comes up. Um, I just started thinking, this is really interesting. You know, Whales and Men is fascinating on a philosophical level, level but very bloated. Hard to see it ever actually being a movie that anyone would Right. Watch. I mean, and it, basically, I think he imports a lot of those ideas into The Crossing. Um, at least yeah. that's, that's what I've always thought. You know, The Counselor is still a more interesting screenplay than the finished film version. But yeah. You have to, I would say you really have to like McCarthy to appreciate the nuances of what's going on there because yeah. it's kind of hard to like. And overlook a lot of things that are just goofy. Yeah, right. Irritating, maybe. Right, but, right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, like in my book, I kind of talk about how McCarthy plays with tragedy. And the counselor is maybe the most heavy handed of you know, those tragedies, if he's playing pretty obviously with, with, you know, that, that, that tradition, that narrative idea, the gardener's son is pretty interesting to think about in terms of tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Not only narratively, but again, tragedy is something that maybe provokes maybe more than any other genre, you know, historically, like our, our, our thoughts about causality, why yeah. things happen. And certainly the Gardner's son, that is, you know, that's a big, that's a really big question. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I have a very special place in my heart for the original screenplay of No Country, which has a happy ending and like, you know, <laughs> a big shootout in the desert. It's awesome. It's everything that he does not do when he writes it as a novel. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, so much fun, uh, but it's it's definitely not as good as the Gardner. Well, and I and I do hope to have you on at some point in the future to basically focus on all those screenplays cool, uh, yeah. that have not been then published. 
when we last had you on, we always had the discussion at the end, what's your favorite book? And when I bring in a repeat guest, of course, I have to vary it. <laughs> and your first choice for favorite uh, was Blood Meridian. Mm. And so I guess what I would ask you is, is there a second favorite? Is there a second One favorite? Day? Yeah. I mean, if I'm, if I'm being honest, right. Um, when I say, well, you know, favorite, that's not, that's not, you know, the next one I would teach or the one I want to write about, sure. <laughs> which are different kinds of questions or, you know, which one do I think, you know, other people like the best, but for me, it's gotta be pretty horses. Uh-huh. That was the first one I read. I find it, I find it really compelling, frankly. And some people, you know, people who were McCarthy fans when it came out, read it and I think wondered, has he gone soft, right? <laughs> you know, he does these really dark Southern novels. Uh, I mean, Sutri is very funny, right? But then there's Blood yes. Meridian, which is crazy and dense and dark. And people thought, well, is he selling out? You know, is he just trying to make money? And he does, you know, become famous with this. You know, and this is a question I kind of think about. I thought about a lot when I was writing the book. You know, he he, he needs money. <laughs> yeah. He needs, that's why he's interested in things like film adaptations or film, you know, film rights, film options. It's not like he, he, he doesn't think about it the way that other authors do. Like, I'm going to go sully myself in Hollywood for a while. You know, he, he's fascinated, I think, by the different format. Um, and you really do, you know, once you know a little bit about where Pretty Horses comes from and the origins of the Border Trilogy in the original screenplay of Cities of the Plain, there is something cinematic about it. But not, to me, that's never been a lessening or a softening. no. It's just that he's doing all these things really well. And one of the things I love about that book is, unlike Blood Meridian, I think, you can hand pretty horses to anybody yeah, and say, read this. This is great. This is great literature. I'm a little more careful with Blood Meridian, but Pretty Horses reaches, I think, some fantastic artistic and philosophical heights while still being a great ripping story. And it, right. it's unexpected. It doesn't turn out perhaps the way that you think it's going to. Um, you can't predict it. It's funny. It's really sad. It's got, it's got great landscape description. It's got some, yeah, as a native Texan, it's got some dialogue that I just find spot on, just so, yeah. so good. You know, it's fixing to come a good, you know, I've taught that and said, what does that mean? <laughs> and that just warms <laughs> my heart. So, yeah, I mean, um, I think Blood Meridian is the masterwork, but I think Pretty Horses is probably my personal favorite. It's maybe the one that I have the most warm feelings about in that sense. I mean, Blood Meridian, I gotta, I gotta put that higher, right? Um, that'll keep me yeah. busy for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. But Pretty Horses is, uh, is, I think is, I've always thought is fantastic. That's a great answer. And I'm with you there. I think Pretty Horses is, well, and you know, I think in the intervening years, the people who came out thinking, has he sold out? Has he gone soft? I think that's kind of vanished. I don't think people mm-hmm. necessarily see it that way. Part of it is how you're supposed to read John Grady. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not really part of the camp that obviously you're not supposed to read him as simply a young superhero cowboy. Right. But at the same time, I don't think you're really supposed to be very judgmental and how he's an idiot deserves everything that happens to him. There's a, there's a lot of grace in between there, I yeah. think, where the reader can find purchase. Yeah, he's a really interesting character. You know, uh, he's 16. He makes some pretty bold decisions. He does some astonishing stuff. He does some dumb stuff. I mean, you know, that's yeah. okay. I'll read that. You know, that's that's some that's something you can really get your teeth in. 
And I know that people have written about the influence of the Ventures Huckleberry Finn on various McCarthy works, including that one. But when I when I teach the Ventures Huckleberry Finn to my students, I always say, in one sense, Huck is far more, much more of a survivor and far more accomplished than your average 13-year-old mm. today. He can go, he knows how to go and find wild onions mm. and wild carrots, and he knows how to what what plants are in farms so he can go in and steal corn and watermelons, whatever. He also knows how to catch fish. He knows mm-hmm. how to work with Jim to rebuild a raft, how to navigate the river. On the other hand, if in today's average 13 year old would go into the woods and start working the phone and <laughs> they wouldn't get a signal and they'd collapse to the ground with their fingers twitching in horror and dismay. And on the other hand, if you were to have Huck have to go to a shopping mall or God forbid encounter internet porn, it would destroy his life when <laughs> right. today's 13-year-old doesn't bat an eye, maybe, yeah, yeah. Uh, regardless of all that we parents have done to build safeguards that it's always kids figure out ways to probably circumnavigate. And so I think there's a lot of that John Grady. He is the mm-hmm. ultra-competent rural kid raised to be a competent hand, mm-hmm. which in farms and ranches throughout American rural history, that's the best you could say of someone. Right. He's, he's good at his job. He can do that well. No, and I think I think too, you know, Huck's definitive moment, you know, all right, then I'll go to hell. Right? Yeah. Um, I will not, I will not turn Jim in. Right. I'll, I'll make this decision, even though I understand that it, 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 it's either morally or maybe just socially the wrong decision. Right. It, it, I'll go to hell. Yeah. It, you know, and John Grady, when Lacey says, what are you going to do? What are we going to do about Blevins? And he says, well, if it was you, I wouldn't leave you here. Well, it's not me. Knowing, yeah. right? Everything's riding on that moment. Everything turns on that yeah. moment. And he makes this very conscious decision. I know this is probably not right. And yet I'm answering to a larger sense of right that I have to follow, right? And so those, yeah, I find those moments really interesting. And then, you know, thinking about something like what he's playing with, though, and things like Outer Dark, Child of God, and The Gardener's Son. You have these really important moments of decision, but they're they're not as articulate. They're not yeah. as considered, right? I mean, not that either John Grady nor Huck Finn is giving you a philosophical treatise about his decision making. No, it's it's something that's bred in their bone, their ability to make that decision. Finally, of course, of Huck, he's had the last few months of being with Jim that have changed everything he's had ever thought about people like Jim right, in the world. Right, and then we have Llewellyn Moss, right, <laughs> who. Ought to know better and probably does, but he just can't let go of it. And uh, and one of the things that always fascinates me about him is when you read his background and his history, which is mostly left out of the film version, which is interesting. And I think it's because they aren't real clear when it's set Mm -hmm. in the film, whereas in the book, it's very much early 80s. He doesn't do anything right. Mm -hmm. He's a sniper, so he gets a short range gun. He doesn't go up in the hills and wait out. He he goes on a run like prey. He doesn't act like a predator anyway. It's just. Mm You know, it's fascinating how he kind of blows it. Yeah. But yeah, I think, um, you know, that's, you could write a whole book about, well, somebody probably has about McCarthy's <laughs> interest in these moments of decision. Mm. When when McAvoy shoots Greg, right? Yeah. How is that happening? When Ballard goes back for the woman's body. First, yeah. well, you know, what is that decision? Right. So I think he goes, what does he do? He goes back for the money and he goes back for something else. And he's like, hot damn, <laughs> I could go back for this other thing. And I don't remember exactly the line, but 
Roland says to John Grady, there's always that moment. Right. You always know coming up to it. It's never it's never the dumb thing. Dumb thing. It's it right before when you knew it was right. something kind right. of, you know. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Dr. Stacy Peebles is chair of the English program, director of film studies, and Marlene and David Grissom, professor of humanities at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She is the author of Welcome to the Suck, narrating an American soldier's experience in Iraq and Cormac McCarthy in performance, page, stage, screen, uh, published in 2017. Co-editor of the upcoming volume on approaches to teaching the works of Cormac McCarthy, published by Model Language Association. And she has been editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal since 2010. Thanks to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced, and music for reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions, or to Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts, we hope that they'll follow along. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. We're very social and this may be sought out on Twitter and Facebook.